Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. This morning, I want to talk about hope. And let me start with a story about a place that Caroline and I visited almost 30 years ago. Early in our marriage, Caroline and I traveled to, for we lived actually for a year in the St. Petersburg, Russia area, as, te- as teachers in a school. This was just after the wall had fallen and communism began to crumble. And during a break in the school year, Caroline and I boarded a train and traveled overnight to Lithuania to visit some friends. One of the places we went to while we were in Lithuania was a place called Shaolay. Shaolay is actually known for a strange landmark. I remember approaching it. We were driving towards Chalet, and I remember off in the distance, you could see what appeared to be a hump, a lump, bump, rising up out of the landscape. And sure enough, about 14 kilometers or so outside of the village of Chalet, in the middle of the field, there's this mound that rises up out of a flat area. It's called the Hill of Crosses. And when you get to that mound, you realize that it's completely made of crosses. There are big crosses and little crosses. There are crosses um, hanging on crosses, crosses on rosaries. There are crosses everywhere. And I mean everywhere. It's estimated there are over 100,000 crosses there now. This monument has a really strange history. It started in the early 1900s, and it's believed that people just erected a few crosses to remember those loved ones who had died. And people would go there, and they would pray. But when the Russians arrived in that area in the 1940s and took occupation of that area, they objected to this religious monument. And they plowed, and they buried, and they burned, and they bulldozed the crosses outside of Chalet down. But every year, like clockwork, they would begin to spring up again. As villagers would come, often under the cover of dark, and plant crosses and pray. And this went on for almost a half a century, until finally in 1988, the Russians gave up and left the crosses in peace. Now, if you go to that hill, the hill in Chalet is a reminder of the buoyancy of of hope and the subtle persistence of hope. And I want you to hold that image this morning, that image of those crosses in your mind for a moment. When we think about hope as believers, hope isn't just based on thin air. Hope is grounded in the reality that God can be trusted. God is good. And God is loving. And God is faithful. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews had a word for this. The word word that's used over 180 times actually is translated in our English Bibles most often as God's unfailing love. Have you ever read a story where a person reaches a door or a bridge or a gate and they can't get in or they can't get through unless they have a special password. The one I think of right away is in Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail, where the bridge keeper requires correct answers to three questions in order for the group to pass over the bridge of death. Well, in the Old Testament, that's what God's unfailing love is like. It's like a key to understanding the character and the nature of God. 
It occurs over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples from Exodus chapter 34. And this is considered one of the high points of God's revelation of himself to his people. One of the most significant moments in Israel's history. Here God discloses to his people who he is, his essence and his character. Exodus 34 says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And there are many more examples, many, many more examples in the Old Testament. Here's one from Isaiah um, chapter 30. So the Lord, uh, verse, verse 18, so the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his unfailing love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. Or sometime, look at uh, Psalm 136. It's actually, it's like a sandwich. It's just every second slice or every second piece in the psalm talks about God's unfailing love from top to bottom. I'll read you just a few verses. And the words, his faithful love is the, is the Hebrew word, God's unfailing love. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. His faithful love endures forever. And it goes on and on. Every second verse reminding us of God's unfailing love. Our hope actually is built on the idea and the belief that God is a God of unfailing love. Love that is undeserved. Love that is unearned. And often love that is underappreciated by those who follow In the New Testament, a word that has a very similar uh, meaning to this word that's translated unfailing love um, comes into play. And that's the word grace. Uh, Jesus spent his whole life trying to help people understand God's unfailing love. Let me give you one example. Maybe his most famous and certainly my most favorite uh, parable was the parable of the prodigal son. The example of grace in this parable is astounding. It really is. You probably know the story well. Jesus tells the story of a selfish son who rejects his father. He takes his inheritance and he leaves only to realize that the path that he thought would lead to uh, freedom and enjoyment is actually a dead end. And when he nears his lowest, the prodigal son uh, returns to the father and to his surprise, he's embraced by the father. The father runs to him, puts a robe on him, celebrates within a huge feast and And just uh, is thrilled that he has returned. Grace and unfailing love. These things are seen so clearly in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God's unfailing love in bodily form. And maybe you need to pause and just think about that for a moment right now. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life. Maybe you're not even sure, sure there is a God. Maybe you're just curious. Maybe you just tuned in this morning to see what church online would be like. Or maybe you believe there is a God, but you sense that God is distant. And you realize that you've done very little to build your relationship with that God. Maybe you've been working on your relationship with God, but you still feel you want to go deeper. Wherever you are, the next point that I'm about to make 
it won't fully make sense to you. I don't think unless you can come to trust God for who he revealed himself to be the God of unfailing love and grace. And to introduce this next point, I just want to tell you another story. A number of years ago, I was in Michigan and I had the opportunity to have lunch with the wife of a prominent bishop from Africa. Among the many things we talked about uh, during that lunch was the plight of so many people, especially children, who were suffering from disease and poverty around Kenya. This was uh, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, when the whole country of Kenya was experiencing incredible challenges and huge losses of life. The woman described situations where infants would be dropped off in her door, on her doorstep, sometimes in paper bags with the hope that she could supply them with the care and resources they needed to help them survive. At a natural break in the conversation, I asked this woman, how is she able to cope with this kind of brokenness and suffering all the time? And after a few minutes, she looked up to me and she said that in situations like that, she usually had to retreat to her rocking chair. Rocking, she said, it's a time for rocking. There were no answers, just a sense of trusting God amidst the rubble of life. How do you respond to suffering and brokenness in your life? This has been a really difficult time. From week to week, we, we really don't know what's going on. We wonder, are things going to begin to take a turn for the better? Or will we still have to wait longer? We wonder, what do you want right now from us uh, right now, God? And the answer, I think, from cover to cover in scriptures is that in times of profound grief and deep confusion, even in our most disrupted, messed up and disoriented moments, we should, in our pain, bring our questions to God and address God directly. This is what the scriptures call lament. Over the past several years, I've discovered the practice of lament. And let me just share with you a couple of things that I've learned. In, in some ways, lament is very simple and it's ordinary. It's just this raw, emotional, honest expression of pain and suffering. Anthropologists and sociologists have looked at it and they found lament is practiced actually in different cultures in all kinds of different ways through, through many, many years. In a general way, lament can be thought of as just the sighs or the sobs or the anger or the complaints that come out of us when we're suffering. But that's lament in general. And I'm not going to talk about lament in general. I want to talk about lament specifically the way it was practiced by Jews and Christians. Because for them, lament was different. For those who believed in God and his unfailing love and trusted him, Lament was different because lament was for them a form of honest prayer that was directed towards God during times of suffering. It was prayer that often included expressions of complaint, anger, grief, despair, protest, or bitterness toward God. Biblical lament is not callous and it's not polite. I want you to think of that, maybe define lament as, as a bold personal cry to God. It approaches God with deep emotion and a longing to see things made right. Lament spawns questions like this. God, why are you allowing this to happen? How long is this going to go on, God? 
Why aren't you doing anything? Act, God, please act for this and do something. Are you sleeping, God? Do you not even have enough power to intervene right now? And the Bible encourages us to go to God with our biggest questions and our biggest concerns and our biggest complaints and lay them before God because we're told we can trust him. Where do we find lament in the Bible? We find it actually all over the place. In the Old Testament, lament is very common. There are whole books that are dedicated to lament, like Lamentations. The Psalms are also filled with lament. In fact, over one-third of the Psalms are classified as lament Psalms. The great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah lament. And Job, where Job suffers so deeply, shows example after example of lament. In the New Testament, we see lament on the lips of Jesus. Maybe the most famous lament of Jesus is from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the eighth chapter of Acts, after Stephen is killed by a mob, we're told that those who took him, took him to be buried and made great lamentation over him. The Apostle Paul expresses lament, as do other New Testament writers like James. Lament is found throughout the Bible. It's a voice that God gives us in times of injustice and suffering and disorientation. And that's why it's so important that you get the first point that I was trying to make. If you don't trust God and believe in his unfailing love, it's re- there's really sometimes no conversation to be had. Why protest to a God if there is no greater plan, or if he's not a God of justice. Someone once said, atheists argue about God, and believers argue with God. Cultivating a strong relationship with God allows you to bring your most difficult questions and situations before God, and seek his intervention, or ask for his help and his healing. So just let me take a moment to summarize where we've been up to this point. The first point I tried to make is that our relationship with God is based upon a belief that God has an unfailing love for his people. That's the nature of God as scripture reveals him to us. God can be trusted even in the very worst moments of our lives. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And this unfailing love comes to us in bodily form in the person of Jesus, our Lord. Believing that and investing in that is bedrock. It's foundational. It's worth investing our whole life in. Second, though, even if we trust God and follow his son, Jesus, we'll find that we live in a broken world where suffering and pain don't play favorites. We're all going to experience in one form or another suffering in our lives. And the most common way that the writers of the Bible confronted this was with a radical trust in God through authentic, honest expressions of pain and grief and anger and complaint towards God in the form of lament. As I wrap up this morning, I want to end by talking about a third indispensable ingredient, which is the ingredient of hope. One, one theologian described hope as the anticipation of joy. I really like that because it kind of sees hope as a telescope that looks ahead beyond our present circumstances and sees out there in the future something that ultimately God will bring together. God is able to make things work together for his good and for his glory. Let me share this picture with you. 
to help you um, imagine how important hope, how, how hope and lament are, are connected or can be connected together in our lives. This picture is a picture that looks at the way hope and lament interact together in our lives. Okay, look at the first area. This is an area where we're feeling hopeless, low hope. And we don't even consider bringing our pain before God. Without hope, we wonder, what's the point? We can go through life and just become numbed by our personal pain and experiences. Our best hope sometimes is to detach and just ride it out. In cases like this, where there's little reason to hope and we're silent before God, we don't even bring God our hurts and pains. We can develop into what I will call for the purposes of, of this sermon, just detached and numb. That's the first block in the diagram. Now, it's possible that we do produce or we do um, practice uh, complaint and lament. However, that sometimes can be done in the context of very little hope. So again, if we have low hope and yet we are high on the, on the lament or complaint side of things, there can be a sense to us that life is just horrible. And we might complain about it. And we really don't often believe it's going to get any better. And sometimes we even doubt that God is able or willing to step in. Without hope, our complaints dissolve into what I'll call despair. There's a third option here, though. Suppose you, you have hope. Suppose you have high hope. And you know many people like this. They shy away from the negative things in life. They like to smile and have fun. They always want to look on the bright side of life. They believe everything is it's going to be great. But they never really acknowledge that as beautiful as life is, the reality is, is that there's terrible pain and suffering in and around us. And by ignoring the pain around us and not treating these negative moments with authenticity, people like that are, are at risk of just being naive optimists, smiling their way through life, yet doing very little to engage God in lament. And finally, the model which is held up for us in Scripture, this fourth block, is a life that has high hope and it knows the power of lament. There is a trust that God is at work, even in the very worst of situations, and that God's purposes are good, even when we can't see that. But there's also a realization that while we live between now and then, we may experience tremendous struggles. The loss of loved ones, unexplainable suffering and grief and unfair treatment. And in this model, in this fourth block, we bring those complaints to God. And we bring our pain and our anger and hurt to God. And this is what I think the Bible calls faithful suffering. Holding on to God white-knuckled, threadbare, without any answers sometimes, and yet trusting that God knows best and will decisively bring things to an end. Of those four blocks, think about it for a moment. Where do you tend to find yourself in that picture? Are you detached and numb? Are you on the verge of despair? Are you just being naively optimistic? Or are you holding on and trusting even when you know things are not just okay? In the beginning, I opened up with a story about the Hill of the Crosses in Chalet, Lithuania. And for decade after decade, I said people visited this area 
to place a cross in remembrance of those who died and prayed and hoped and hoped and prayed. Bulldozers came along periodically to destroy their hope. Yet they continued to hope and lament and lament and hope. Over time, even though the cost to them was enormous, enormous, something began to happen. What was a sight of suffering made only worse by the insensitive atheistic culture around them, which tried to destroy their hope, something began to change. When militant atheism began to weaken and wane, hope, a resilient, persistent hope, began to spring up. Now, eventually, this hill, this hill of crosses, has become a reminder to people all around the world of the buoyancy and subtle persistence of hope. People visit it today as an example of patient faithfulness, triumphing over ideological atheism. It's a monument to the power and example of faithful suffering. One great theologian said this about it. People cluster around the hill and remember how mighty Russians mustered their machines around the crosses and how the crosses beat them back. Each cross planted during the time of Russian occupation when it was forbidden to plant them, became a reminder that more things are possible than they dared to dream of then. This hill of memory has been transformed into a hill of hope. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com. There's no-